You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is the book critic for NPR's All Things Considered. He's the author of many fine books, including the forthcoming Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Great pleasure, Rick. Well, we have a, an interesting selection of books today, uh, Some a lot of really fine stuff that's coming out in uh, out at the moment and coming out soon. Uh, let, let's start with uh, the new and selected stories by E.L. Doctorow. Because, you know, he's a guy that we think of and, and is, in fact, a fantastically dependable, mainstream, literary, glorious writer. And one of the things I've thought about this equate, uh, this collection struck me was that, you know, he's a pretty daring guy still. He go, he'll go into some really interesting places. This is not—this is, I think, a more diverse and uh, daring collection I, than I kind of expected. I think you're absolutely right. You can see that he really uh, experiments in a mm-hmm. way, in the best possible way. Right, right. Tries stuff out. Uh, you know, the the uh, songs of uh, Billy, Billy Bathgate, Bathgate that, you've, that we find in this collection, which apparently he's revised. Uh, this is a slightly different version than the original story that appeared. Uh, just beautiful lyrical uh, takes on uh, the Bronx, of all places, life in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, some of these other stories too have, you know, uh, if not exactly a touch of the fantastic, a, a, a touch of the surreal that I think is really that was unexpected. I did not expect that, and I thought he did a great, does a great job of that. And I, I just had a wonderful time reading these stories. They're so diverse, and he really captures you with, you know, he's got beautiful prose. Uh, beautiful prose. And a lot of uh, variety, too, I think. That's one of the things that uh, makes short story collections, I think, so appealing. And I hope that this one finds a, a pretty large audience because the short story collection is, as we all know, often highly threatened. And But in, in his case, it, uh, I think people who are waiting for a novel with his to come out will go to this collection. Um, it, the, the, the signature piece in the book, I think, is that, that story of his. Now, all of these pieces have been published before, either in book form or in magazines. Um, so this brings together uh, the, the kind of the, the brandy the, or the cognac of his work in short fiction. But the signature work for me is the, the story, I think it's one of the oldest in the collection, is called The Writer in the Family, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, came out... Uh, Previously, and um, I'm trying to remember, it came out in—I you know, think it came out in Esquire, mm-hmm. and it came out in an earlier collection of stories. It is just uh, wonderful, and in a way, it's the most conventional story. It's a, it's a, a realistic story about a young fellow uh, who uh, everyone, whom everyone in the family regards as the writer, because that's you know what he says he wants to do. His father dies, but uh, his sister, an aunt that he doesn't really particularly like, insists that she says, you're the writer in the family. You write letters to your grandmother in your father's voice because she's in her 90s. It'll kill her if she knows that he's died. And he writes these uh, 
letters and his father's voice uh, that really caused much more pain and discomfort to him than the actual uh, event of his father's death. And the end, and the end is a really wonderful uh, culmination of, of his new writerly vocation. Well, one of the things I, I think that's so uh, beautiful about that story, too, is just, you know, the, the question of identity and the, the father-son relationships, mm-hmm. um, especially when, you know, you're working with a father who, who has died. It's, a, it's really a, a beautiful evocation of that and also just a, of the, the creative spirit. And, and, again, the importance of story and family is it, we don't often think about how important narratives and family narratives are just to how families relate to one another. But here's a here's a story that a story, not surprisingly, that that uh, makes that quite clear in in a way that's just a gorgeous, wonderful reading experience. Yeah, uh, family uh, is one of the big themes here, uh, and and there are a lot of takes on the question of family from different directions. Uh, one of the newer stories in here is called Assimilation, <laughs> and it's a uh, about a dishwasher in a in a a restaurant in in the big city, who gets conned by his boss into bringing over, uh, in order so she can get a green card, this uh, gangster, Eastern European gangster's girlfriend, um, and it again is a wonderful turn at the end where uh, dishwasher triumphs. I don't want to give away anything more than that, but um, dishwasher triumphs over big boss and the bloody Eastern European mafia. Well, you know that story too has a has a really nice uh, flavor of place in it, and you you really feel the you know the location and just the 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 gestalt of that story. I think uh, really gets under your skin in a way, just by virtue of, of his prose and his you yep. know narrative skills. He really knows how to. Doctorow's prose is is uh, so nice because it doesn't call attention to itself when you mm-hmm. read it. It just flows for you and that and he really knows um i think he uh, as a writer he's a writer who understands how readers read mm-hmm. so he's able to work that relationship well to he knows when to leave stuff out when you're gonna when you as a reader can make the bridge without the words and when the words need to be there yeah that's that's an interesting take on what he does yeah um, this this question now that we're talking about this question of home and family really looms large uh, in this collection, I mean, the, the opening story, Wakefield, mm-hmm. uh, about, as you know, is about this uh, businessman who uh, decides not to go home one night, but goes to his house and takes sets up camp above the garage and hides out for a year. You know, this is a theme that's uh, that cro- has seems to be cropping up. The, the you know the hider in the house because uh, there was a story in the uh, Siobhan Fallon uh, collection mm-hmm. that also took that uh, that tack about mm-hmm. a, a, a soldier who returns home. He thinks his wife is cheating on him, and so he mm-hmm. hides in the in the basement. And I think that the, this kind of idea of hiding in our own house and hiding. Yeah. From our lives within our lives is a really uh, interesting take on how insular we're we're becoming and and how mm-hmm. cut off from well, even ourselves. Well, houses can be dangerous too. If you read the, the story in here called "A House on the Plains," uh, which is actually based on an historical account of a uh, a not 
so nice uh, homeowner uh, <laughs> in the uh, late 19th century, I guess it is. Uh, but, you know, my, my one of my favorites in here, maybe the favorite, is uh, the cult story, called the story called Walter John Harmon, after the name of this uh, Midwestern uh, cult leader, told from the point of view of one of his followers, a lawyer uh, who, uh, along with his wife, has given all, over all of his worldly goods and joined this commune led by Walter John Harmon, who's a, an auto mechanic who uh, escapes miraculously unscathed from a tornado that blows through his town and blows the garage down around him, and he's left standing with these two little children that are blown into his arms by the wind, and he saves these kids' lives and becomes a uh, a, 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 a new uh, avatar. Uh, American Messiah. Group. Yeah. Um, that's an extraordinary story. You'd think nobody could write that story straight in a straightforward voice, but Dr. has found the absolutely perfect voice for uh, the cult, a and, convert whose faith is tested. <laughs> <laughs> well, too, and this is a, a, a very interesting that, that cult stories are becoming, I think, uh, quintessentially American stories. America doesn't, I don't think Americans like to think of themselves as the home to cults, but we're really good at that. <laughs> and, and this story kind of points out just how good we are at it. Yeah, alas. Alas. <laughs> yes, I mean, this is... Uh... This is a story that plays on love and jealousy as well as the testing of one's faith. I mean, there's so much going on in this in this one story. I, I think it's that's why it's my favorite in this collection. But it's a, it's a wonderful collection. Yeah, and, and it's wonderful. all the time in the world is the title. Right? All the time in the world, new and selected stories by E. L. Doctorow. Let's talk about another writer who garnered quite a bit of notice with his very first book, Kevin Brockmeyer. The he has a new book out called Now the Illumination. And I think he's living up to his early hype, and and this book is is a really superb and sublime and, and very Twilight Zone episode writ large and writ well. Too. Yeah, I, I think confess I hadn't read Brockmeyer before this novel, and it's re- he's really uh, quite an impressive writer, mm-hmm. um, dealing with uh, the extraordinary that crops up in the ordinary world. Yeah, you know, he it, a- it, it's it's. Um, this novel opens on a Friday evening. Uh, he puts it in his narrative half an hour before the light struck, and this woman named Carol Ann Page slices off part of her thumb while she's cutting a cutting open a package from her nasty ex-husband, and she goes to to the hospital, the emergency room, and she gets emergency surgery, and her hand begins to glow, and th- what she doesn't know, we we just soon discover, is this phenomenon, this what Brockmeyer calls the, the strange illumination of the injured has become a, instantly become a worldwide phenomenon. And, uh, you know, all pain is beginning to show itself in light. I mean, everything from cancer to, uh, you know, uh, an aching hip or a toe begins to manifest itself in, in light. Um, and it's an amazing conceit. And he pulls it off all the way through a series of uh, encounters with uh, various, various sorts of people, a, a schoolboy, a Christian missionary abroad, a news photographer, a writer, 
and and uh, and a street vendor. I mean, it's just uh, this illumination is passed along. Well, one of the things this this points out that, and this is such a great, it's a literal use of the elements of the fantastic to externalize yep. things that we can't see. And and here it's really just quite literal. And I think that's a really brilliant idea. It really shortcuts. It's still just as believable as anything else we've yeah. read. But, you know, I mean, some, you know, immediately people will say, oh, that's magical realism. But, I, you know, I think it goes back as a lot of what we call magical realism, especially in, in North American writers, goes back to uh, to Gogol's The Nose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this you, you introduce this fantastic element. You know, I think Garcia Marquez has, has talked about it. You know, you, you, step one, two, three, four is perfectly literal, mundane, ordinary, and step five is fantastic. But you accept it because you've trod along this Worn ordinary path, um, and so this is this is go Goglian. <laughs> well, too, it also helps that when the writer is able to, once he's introduced the element of the fantastic, to have his characters react to it in a way that's you know realistic and grounded in what we've seen of the mm-hmm. characters before. And this is mm-hmm. where Brockmeyer really comes through. And also, again, to give an emotional connection to it, mm-hmm. so it's not just some kind of external threat, but that there's an emotional connection internal between the character and this element of the fantastic, in this case, being able to to see, literally see pain. Right. It, it That immediately creates a connection that the reader can understand. And, and here's where uh, I think reading has, it really reveals its strengths, because I think that if you were to see this uh, as a movie or something, it would like really look kind of phony baloney. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when you read about it, it just seems um, both serene and strikingly, achingly kind of poignant. And he manages to get poignant without uh, getting uh, weepy. Yes, and I'm sure, I mean, because the light comes from the hurt mm-hmm. or the illness, the pain. It doesn't inflict pain, whereas I'm sure if there's a movie version, we're going to see characters going up in flames by the score. We're talking about light. Um, the, the, the book, the, the most impressive and astonishing piece of work uh, that I've read in the last couple of weeks is uh, called The Tiger's Wife. Taya Obret. Taya Obret, who is born in Belgrade. Um, she grew up in uh, Cyprus and Egypt. She came to the U.S. when she was about 12 or 13 um, and uh, finished her education here. And she, I guess she's 26 years old now, so she, she must have written this book in her early 20s, and it is an astonishing and wonderful piece of work. It, it just, uh, you know, Stands heads above uh, most of the most of the work by writers that age. It, it reminds me of the kind of debuts we used to have in America. You know, when Mailer would publish *The Naked and the Dead* mm-hmm. before he turned twenty-six, and uh, it, it's an astonishing piece of work. And it's just beautifully written. It the prose is so wonderful. It's really oh yeah. I mean, it just overcomes all of one's prejudices about, uh, you know, a first novel set in a foreign country, Mm -hmm. 
um, it's got a, a, a very sharply observant narrator um, who is uh, a young doctor in, uh, in the Balkans whose grandfather has been a doctor and, and because of that has uh, you know, infused her with the love of medicine. She becomes a doctor, and as the book opens, as, as you know, she sets out on this uh, humanitarian journey, goes to this uh, seaside town uh, in the midst of, you know, at the moment, halted hostilities among various Balkan territories. To, to uh, inoculate some children, and uh, and while she's on the road, she learns that her grandfather has died in his home village up up in the mountains somewhere, and she decides to go back there and to go up there and retrieve his belongings for her grandmother, and um, and she goes back in the book in her mind and in the book back to his early life in that village and, and his subsequent career and uh, focuses on this uh, metaphor which is grows out of this literal tiger who uh, escaped from the Belgrade Zoo during a, a, a World War II uh, German bombing and wanders through the land and finally makes his home up there in the mountains where um, her grandfather's come from and, and her grandfather his, well, his life was marked by the advent of this tiger. He carries it around like a watermark. In fact, he, he literally carries around uh, Jungle Book, Kipling's Jungle Book, and uh, which he had uh, read to her when she was a child. Uh, so this is a, a novel in which uh, this animal is a major roaming character in his own right. And the prose... Indulge me. Let me read a little. Oh, sure. It's beautiful. The tiger sequence, okay? Um, If the tiger had been a different sort of tiger, a hunter from the beginning, he probably would have come down to the village sooner. Uh, That that opens this long passage describing how he's uh, roaming around the, the, the ridges above this village all day long. He walked up and down the length of the ridge, letting the smells drift up to him, puzzled by the feeling that they weren't entirely new. He had not forgotten his time at the Citadel, meaning the zoo, but his memory was heavily veiled by his final days there, and the days afterward, his arduous trek, burrs and splinters and glass stinging his paws, the dense, watery taste of the bloated dead. The smells from below meant something related to that, and they made him restless and agitated as he wandered the woods. The smells were pleasant and distinct, entirely separate from one another. The thick, woolly smell of sheep and goats, the smell of fire, tar, wax, the interesting reek of the outhouses, paper, iron, the individual smells of people, the savory smells of stew and goulash, the grease of baking pies. The smells also made him more and more aware of his hunger, his lack of success as a hunter, of the length of time since his last meal. That night he had come halfway down the mountain, stopped at a precipice where the tree line curved around the bottom of a frozen waterfall, and looked and looked at the burning windows and snow-topped roofs below him in the valley. And some nights later there was a new smell. He had sensed it here and there in the past, 
the momentary aroma of salt and wood smoke, rich with blood. I mean, just... Um, she really strikes it, a mythic tone, I think, really and, well. And, it's, and it, 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 it just is perfect diction, um, and it moves beautifully. And where she gets this uh, insight from is another question, but you can see that this is a case of uh, someone who's learned English as a second language and fallen in love with the language. Um, I mean, so as a... As a writer, I mean, she's not she's not old enough to be uh, considered along with, uh, say, Nabokov and, and Conrad in that she learned English at a much earlier age but than they did. But still, she's in that tradition of the, the writer from elsewhere who uh, pronounces this great love affair with uh, American uh, literary language. And the American literary novel, because it's a beautiful novel too the prose oh, yeah. is wonderful but the as a novel as a whole novel is an immersive in rich, mm-hmm. rich experience it's oh, yeah. really I mean, she full just, to the of, of the stuff of life there she just produces wonders I mean there's a hunting scene mm-hmm. the, the, where the, the villagers go off to try to kill the beast and uh, you know it's the gun gets turned around, and I mean, it, and, and that's—I mean, reading that scene nearly took took off the top of my head. I have to say. <laughs> well, then uh, let's hope that it leaves the readers' heads on to read a, a different kind of uh, book, cleaning Nabokov's house. So you yes. were just mentioning Nabokov. That's how much the the, the 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 goat song compared to the Obrecht, but it's a it's a charming, uh, kind of tough-minded but at the same time, whimsical domestic novel about a woman who, um, whose marriage has come apart. She's in upstate New York, only gets visits with her kids once a week, and she's moved to this house that apparently used to belong to Vera and Vladimir Nabokov when he was teaching at Ithaca, at Cornell in Ithaca. And uh, she seems to find, or she finds what she believes, is convinced is a manuscript in the book of famous note card method uh, that is an unpublished novel of his about love and baseball, <laughs> um, about Babe Ruth. So um, she proceeds to try to become a writer based on that discovery. And, uh, and then she also uh, discovers that the town, the women of the town, were ravenous uh, readers of romances with like a little actual romance. And, and she sets herself up as a temporary upstate New York small town uh, sex manager. <laughs> Let's put it that way, right? Well, you know, uh, you mentioned Babe Ruth. Um, I think the, 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 Referent Babe for this book is Babe the Ox. This sort of struck me as a as a really nice modern evocation of a tall tale. It really had that feel. Babe, oh, Babe the Blue Ox. Yeah, Babe the Blue Ox. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is this is a kind of a very much a tall tale to, to my mind, mm-hmm. and that's how I read it. It just seemed like it was really fine. It was a little bit exaggerated. She has a great prose voice. The author's name is Leslie Daniels. And yeah. it's a really easy book to read. You can't stop reading it. It's written in these very short kind of terse chapters with titles, and it's it's really, really entertaining. 
um, she she really writes really really well. I think it, it's uh, I mean you just really want to read what she whatever the heck she has to say, and, and she does create a, a nice cast of characters and and you know flesh them all out really nicely and and yeah you, you get a nice plot. It's it's just a, a fun book to read. It's um it's it's a romance as you suggest, and it might have an element of fantastic. I don't know. We we might argue about that part, but um it does have a wonderful voice, a wonderfully affecting affecting narrative voice. Charming. Charming, but not not uh, vapid. Exactly. And that's what we're looking for when we sit down to read, because reading, it takes a little time, and you want those books to be worth the valuable time you spend reading them. And I think today, we managed to find four that were well worth anybody's valuable time. Hope so. Yes. I've been speaking with Alan Shoes. His forthcoming book is Songs of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for speaking with me, Alan. Great pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.